We have two readings tonight. Our first reading will be Psalm 8. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Our second reading will be Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 9. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is man? that you were mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. This week, we carry on in our little mini-series about work. Last week, we looked at the dignified purpose of work. This week, we're looking at the present frustrations of work. Let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, to a man and woman here, we need you to do us good this evening. We need you to help us think about the world we live in, in a Christian way. We need you to help us to be people who approach our work, knowing that you are Lord. Please help us, Heavenly Father. Please give us ears to hear, soft hearts and minds to understand. Amen. If you go on the website that's called Bright Talent Recruitment, alongside the uh, sort of blue-eyed, clean-cut man in a suit, you hear you have this phrase, to find out what one is suited to do and to secure that opportunity is the key to happiness. Or for a mere £12.96 on Amazon, you can find a book entitled The Right Job, Right Now, The Complete Toolkit for Finding Your Perfect Career. Can that be true? Is it possible to find perfect happiness by choosing, by finding the right career? If we do that, if we find the right career, does that mean that on a Monday morning, when the alarm goes off, we'll let out a hearty, hi-ho, and 
and skip off to work. Is, it, is that possible? I hope that, that, that some of what we looked at last week will help, indeed help us to be more thankful in our jobs. Last week we looked, as I said just now, at the dignified purpose of work. We saw that to work is part of what it means to be made in God's image. Our work in subduing this creation is, is an echo of God's creating, sustaining, and ordering work in the world. We saw that work is a, a blessing. It was given to us before the fall. Work is a blessing, not just a necessary evil. We saw that just like all of our lives, work is to be done with an attitude of service. And we've reflected on just how liberating that is. How liberating it is to know that we go to work to serve rather than to be under the tyranny of constantly needing to think that our career must be on an upward path. Right, free from the tyranny of, of needing to desperately take every single opportunity we get just to prove ourselves. And we saw that all of work should be informed by Christ's lordship. Remember, we remembered that ultimately Jesus is our boss and it is his opinion of our working day and our working practices that ultimately matter. Wonderful, wonderful truths which, which I genuinely hope will help us to enjoy work more. Yet, without wanting at all to take anything away from what we said last week, this week we do need to face up to the reality that very often our work will be a lot less like this and a lot more like this. <laughs> this week, we're going to see that work will be frustrating. The, the question is, how do we account for those frustrations? Um, how do we interpret them, and how do we react to them? That's where we're going this evening. So our first point is the general one. Because of the curse, work in this world will always be frustrating. Turn back with me, would you, to uh, page 546 in Psalm 8. We'll begin to read at uh, verse 3. Listen to David as, as he reflects on the wonder of what it is to be human. From verse 3, David says, When I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And we imagine perhaps, you know, King David on the royal porch staring up at the constellations up above him. He continues, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. And you see that how that's kind of picking up on the language we looked at last week. That sort of Genesis 1.28 language about subduing all of creation. So he says, You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, 
all that swim in the paths of the sea. That's a beautiful vision of mankind in its rightful place. Under God, exercising loving, servant-hearted dominion over this wonderful creation. That's the vision in Psalm 8. And we say, well, yeah, very nice. So far, so seven dwarves. But now, flick on to our second reading. I'm sure, I'm sure you realize, as Aaron read, that the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 8 verbatim, basically. I hope you picked up on that. And he seems to be saying, the writer of Hebrews seems to be saying, yes, this is the ultimate destiny of humanity. But then the sobering reality of verse 8 kicks in. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, at present, we do not see everything subject to him. And, and don't, don't, we get, don't we get glimpses of that? I mean, we, we get in our, in our work the, sometimes the, the glimpse of what work is meant to be like, don't we? Sometimes you come home, you do something, and you come home from work, and you say, yeah, that was a satisfying day. I achieved what I wanted to achieve. The problem is, of course, that we all know that that kind of satisfaction is far rarer than we'd like it. We get daily reminders, do we not, that mankind is not in that exalted position over creation that we'd love to be. So the photocopier breaks just when you're running late. Or you, you, you spend hours on a document and you realize you've been working on the wrong version of it. The, the hard drive suddenly fries. You misunderstand what your boss wanted you to do. Or you're just bored of the slog of it. We only have to look round and realize that despite the massive technological advances and the progress of humanity, we are not in charge of this creation in the way that Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2 ultimately say that that is the destiny of mankind. Now, I had, um, I had first-hand experience of this, actually, a week or so ago. It was actually when I was, um, I was preparing my sermon for last week. And there was me, uh, sat, up on, sat on one of the coffee shops a little bit further up Piccadilly. It was a prayer. I was sat outside writing my sermon on my laptop. When suddenly, a low-flying pigeon decided to empty the not inconsiderable contents of its bowels right on my laptop keypad. <laughs> it splattered all over the screen and it splattered all over me. And I thought, I thought verse 7... Crowned with honour and glory. <laughs> I didn't feel very crowned with honour and glory when I spent the next 20 minutes with napkins and those little wooden stirrers trying to scrape <laughs> bird poo from out my laptop keys. Humanity has been working for millennia. But things still rust, factories still burn down, Data still gets corrupted, photocopies still jam, and Hebrews 2 and the Bible says it will always be so at present. That is reality. 
And we say, well, why? Why was something so good and so dignified with such purpose as work? Why is it so frustrating now? And you'll know that the answer is Genesis 3.17, which will come up on the screen. God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. The curse on work, the fact that it is frustrating, is because God has cursed it as part of the punishment on humanity for our rebellion against him all those thousands of years ago. Work that was meant to be pleasant and satisfying is now at present painful and tiring and frustrating. When the photocopier breaks, when a pigeon poos on your laptop, that is the present reality of living in a world that is still under God's curse. By the way, I know, I know I'm sort of using examples of photocopies and laptops and stuff quite flippantly. I know they're first world problems. I know there are millions of people around the world whose work is horrific in a way that I hope none of us ever have to experience. But the fact is that in this world, work will always be frustrating because this world is still under a curse. But you know, I think, from my experience, you'd think that would be an incredibly depressing thing to realize. But actually, from my experience is, is facing up to that fact, facing up to the fact that work is going to be frustrating and it's often going to be grim. Far from making us despondent, is liberating. You know, when I, first, um, when I first started working as an auditor, I heard uh, a sermon like this. And it actually helped me locate my experience of work in the bigger picture of reality. Why did work so often feel frustrating? Because I was in the wrong job? No. Because God was somehow particularly angry with me and punishing me? No. But because I was and I am and I always will be working in a world where work is cursed. Now, I'm not saying, like, be, be totally masochistic about this. I'm not saying, like, find the worst job you possibly can and go, ah, oh, look at me, I understand Genesis 3. But obviously not. Where you have the time and the authority to try and make work better, I mean, do it. And there will obviously be times when work gets a job or an employment gets so bad that it's the right thing to leave, obviously. But, in general... Accepting that because of the curse, work will be frustrating. I think it liberates us from another tyranny, the tyranny of thinking we need to find the perfect job before we'll be happy. And I think it liberates us and frees us to say, well, how can I use the job I've got to serve others and to glorify God in the circumstances that I find myself in? So we go to work recognizing that it's part of what it means to be made in God's image. We go to work rejoicing that it is an area for service. We go to work knowing that Christ is Lord. We go to work thankful where we can be thankful. We go to work enjoying the good things about it where we can. But we go to work recognizing 
often with sadness, that because of the curse of Genesis 3, work will very often be grim and frustrating. Because of the curse, work will always be frustrating. The key question, though, really for us is, okay, granted there will be those frustrations, what do we do with those frustrations? That's the key question, and that brings us on to our second point. These frustrations fuel our hope for the future. The frustrations with work fuel our hope for the future. So you have a look at verse 5 in Hebrews 2. Did you notice what world it is that he's been talking about as, we, as Aaron read it? Verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. Don't worry too much about the angels bit. The point is that in this glorious, in, in this um, bit in Hebrews, the, the writer is saying, yes, this glorious vision of Psalm 8 is going to be fulfilled, but only in the world to come. Hebrews 2 says, there is a world coming and Jesus is leading redeemed humanity there where work will be as it was always meant to be. Because do, you think, do you think for a moment there's not going to be work in the new heavens and the new earth? Have you ever stopped to think about that? Do you know what Isaiah 65 says about work in the new heavens and the new earth? Isaiah 65 says this, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered. And of us, his people, in the new heavens and the new earth, God says this, They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. Friends, there is a world coming where there will be days of progress and vitality and wholesomeness and satisfaction and service, the likes of which our best days on this earth are only a dim echo. Amidst all the singing and the praising in the new heavens and the earth. Some of us will be gardeners. Some of us will run vineyards. Some of us will build buildings. Some of us will create things. Some of us will invent things, write things, and make music. And it will be glorious. And knowing that, knowing that that future is coming, gives us an outbox for our frustrations with work now. So will you try this? The next time the photocopier jams, or whatever it is, will you take 10 seconds to cast your thoughts upwards to how glorious work is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth? Because I think the more that we know that there is a glorious future, actually, the more we will want to work from a Christian perspective on this earth. The more I know that there's going to be an eternity of fantastically fulfilling other person-centered work in the world to come, well, it stands to reason the less likely I am to make my career an idol on this earth. The more I remember that there is a kingdom coming where we will serve King Jesus, the more I will want to work under his lordship 
in this world. But even more importantly, the more I remember that there is a world to come, the more I will be concerned with another type of work altogether. And that is the family business of preparing people for this world to come. Flick with me, will you, to uh, John chapter 5. That's page 1068. John chapter 5, verse 17. There, there are Jews, and, and they are saying to Jesus, what right? Why are you going around doing all these things you're doing? They question his right, and Jesus' response is basically to tell them, I do what I do because I'm involved in a family business. Verse 17. Jesus says, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. And we ask, well, what is, what is the work of the family business? And verse 21 tells us, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Yes, every, every second God is at work sustaining this creation. But there is also another special work of God that we see him putting his hand to, as it were, in the world right now. That is the work of recreating individuals. That is the work of bringing individuals from death to life. That is the work of forgiving people their sins on the basis of Jesus' death. That is the work of preparing people for this glorious world to come. And in a similar way, yeah, we have our nine to five jobs where we are wonderfully and gloriously involved in subduing this creation, frustrating though it will be. We've seen how important that is. We've seen how those jobs have inherent value. But on top of that nine to five work, if you like, every child of God will want to be involved in some way in the family business of evangelism and disciple-making. And our frustrations remind us that there is that job to do. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that we'd want to be involved in this family business? If you're an architect, the, the buildings that you build now, they do matter. We saw that last week. But those buildings will not last into the world to come. If you're a lawyer, if, you're, if you are passionate about justice, that is wonderful and that is good. But true justice will never be seen on earth until Jesus comes back to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. If you are involved in commerce, that is important, that is good. But only Jesus offers something that money cannot buy. If you are a doctor, it matters that you save people's lives. But only Jesus saves people for eternity. And this, this outbox, if you like, of, of the family business, that is where we take our frustrations with this world of work. When we're frustrated with work and we realize that there is a better world to come, 
we're reminded that we want to be involved in the family business of helping people get to that world. When our frustrations remind us that there is a greater judgment coming upon this earth than even the curse of Genesis 3, then that makes us want to get involved in the family business of helping our colleagues escape that judgment. Someone be paid full-time to do the work of evangelism and disciple-making. Others will take opportunities to speak to their colleagues about Jesus. Some will invite their colleagues to guest events. Some will give really significant amounts of their salary to the church or mission organization to invest in that family business of evangelism and disciple-making. All of us will pray for the results of the family business. But some of you will be saying, particularly some of you who were here last week who um, remember the introduction, yeah, okay, I hear you, I get that, but how do I, how do I split my time between my nine-to-five job and this family business, family business of evangelism and disciple-making? That's a key question, isn't it? And I'm aware, obviously, that there will be tensions But let me, uh, I throw this out there. You can come and speak to me about it afterwards if you disagree. Let me throw this out there. That I think, actually, counterintuitively, the the more that you give yourself to your nine-to-five job and the more you give yourself to that in a thoroughly Christian way, I actually think that will will reduce the tension between your nine-to-five job and the family business. As you guys take the Christian perspective and see work as an arena for service rather than an opportunity to feed the idol of self-fulfillment, I mean, won't that, won't that make the boss's opinion of you a little less important and the possibility of leaving work on time, I don't know, to, meet the, to get to the prayer meeting or get to the slob study or get to the knowing God study a little less difficult? As you take the Christian perspective and remember that Jesus is your ultimate boss, won't that mean that your, your actions, much more of the time, will back up, will adorn the gospel message that you're speaking to your colleagues? As you take the, the Christian perspective and perhaps get promoted, won't that mean you've got more money to give to the church or whatever to invest in the family business? And over above that, as you take Jesus' lordship seriously into your workplaces, his lordship in your heart and his lordship over all of creation, and as you speak about that fearlessly and, and freely, won't that actually mean that there's more opportunity to do the family work of evangelism rather than less opportunity? So I don't think there's a necessarily a tension. I, don't, I think if, if you give yourself to, to the, the nine-to-five job, as it were, from a thoroughly Christian perspective, I think that will explode opportunities, give us many more opportunities to do the family business of evangelism and disciple-making. So as we finish this series, all our work has inherent value. But at present, because of the curse, it will always be frustrating in this world. The outbox for those frustrations is twofold. Firstly, it makes us hope for the glorious world to come. And secondly, 
it means that we're mindful of giving ourselves to the family business of evangelism and disciple making. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, many of us here will have so much stress and anxiety attached to our jobs. And we're mindful, Heavenly Father, that work will always be cursed on this earth. And yet we thank you for that glorious image of the world to come where everything will be perfect, where our work will be wholly satisfying and beautiful and glorious. And we ask that you will turn our hearts to that place to come often and frequently this week. And as we do so, Heavenly Father, will you give us hearts that are soft to want to tell our colleagues about this glorious world to come. For Jesus' name's sake we pray. Amen.